A stu stu Studio D production. I missed the hundredth episode. No, we have. It was the clip episode. You, it was That's when right, we were all five on that episode. <laughs> we were all five on it, Val. Do you do you guys see that video that I sent? Sit down. I want to tell you a story. A really weird and messed up story with murdering ghosts and gobbly ghouls. It's all really fucked up, so don't you be fooled. She's like, probably so sleepy. It's effed up family story time. She was clearly trying to rock. Perception. I don't know why I said this. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to Effed Up Family Storytime. I'm Salem. And I'm Jess. And I'm Belle. Woo! Perception. And perception. <laughs> um, we are here recording on a beautiful sunny day. It's officially Yay. fall. Happy fall. Yeah. I think it's time to put some pumpkins up. When? Out. We've hit our our anniversary right <laughs> when did we start recording it was in september yeah i think we released our very first episode either late august early september i think it was september so it was cold it, enough it went right past us it did it was cold enough that i remember i was wearing a sweater because i was wearing my ugly bronco sweater because as i've discussed before my weird memory is all about clothes people are wearing it's like how i do that too <laughs> but that's what i mean by visual cues though right like i have this memory because it's anchored to something i saw right like yeah. i almost always remember what i was wearing exactly and every significant memory i have so i just looked back and we released our very first episode september 9th okay 2019 dang so, we're three years old four <gasps> we're four years old <laughs> math <laughs> math is is hard it is wait you weren't around to hear about how i am un, un, incapable of measuring things accurately i don't know how to count time accurately because the fact oh. that you have to count because it's 60. the way the hours work? I don't know. It's because hard. It's, it's, <laughs> it's in units of 60 instead of 100. No, even just in terms of hours. Like if I have to figure out how many hours is it from 7 to 8, right? With, mm -hmm. uh, without, you know, it's just hard for me to think about it because like one of those hours, you like don't. Just the way that it counts. It's like I've really got, confusing. Got, I don't know how to explain so, it. I've got some tips when we're <laughs> off the podcast that might help you. Age confuses me sometimes. Like, doesn't confuse me. But there are times when I think about young kids and like when they're one year old, they're living their second year. Yeah. That kind of stuff. It doesn't confuse me necessarily, but it's just so does a that, weird mind fuck. So I think. that's why I got confused. That's why we're four years yeah. old and I'm three years old. You're, yeah. I do know how to do math. I know the three, <laughs> whatever, nine, 13, whatever. Math is dumb. <laughs> Every time. But see, I'm good at math and I still can't measure things for to save my life like i'm gonna have to go have someone measure me for a bra because i keep getting a negative number somehow Whoa. and <laughs> yeah, that is interesting i don't know how that and i'm doing the math right it's the measuring that i am screwing up somewhere that's making the math negative i also can't estimate distances either I'm so not that's great at that no i'm not great at that which I'll I, be like, God, that place is five miles away, and it'll be like a mile and a half. <laughs> which I should be better at, considering we used to play that game with Dad in the car, where we would pick something in the distance, we'd check the odometer, and we'd all guess how far away we thought it was, and then we'd see who was right. You'd think I would have like developed some skill no. from that, not even a little. I think it's a <laughs> thing that you either have or don't have. 
I, like it goes along skill. with spatial reasoning. Yeah. Direction. I, think, I have no sense of direction. If I ever moved out of Colorado, I would. I oh, mean, I I'm would already die. lost. I'm already lost See, 90% I, of the time walking around in this city that I've lived in for 30 fucking years. I think, and if it weren't for the mountains, I would have no choice, like no chance. I think I am only bad at directions outside of Colorado because I grew up here and learned directions with mountains not mountains like and so when i go somewhere that's the first thing i look for and i'm like fuck there's no mountains like, like and when I think you're in the mountains if i had grown up in kansas i might be better with north southeast and west in kansas but i just don't understand how you could be standing in a field in kansas and have any idea which direction is right. which way because there's not <laughs> a single like land point i mean to if go there's a road of. and you know that road is I mean the sun. Yeah, that's how older. Yeah, the sun. I forgot it. about the sun. You know, the sun and stars <laughs> and shit like that. Shut up. <laughs> All right. Maybe we should head in the direction of telling a story. <laughs> and that direction is. I think this is the east. first time that I've been worried that Bud is listening to the podcast because I have sounded so fucking stupid. Like, who the hell did I just hire? What's the sun? What's the sun? I'm glad she works indoors. Oh, well, we are going to head east today for our story if we want to keep with the directions. But then that's all I got for you because I really don't understand where in England this town is, but it's a town. Oh, okay. Okay. So my story today is about a man who many credit for inspiring not only the modern day detective, but many literary detectives and the literary detective we know of today. He was actually confirmed to be the inspiration for Charles Dickens's Inspector Bucket and Wilkie Collins's Sergeant Cuff and even certain aspects of Sherlock Holmes like certain techniques used in Sherlock Holmes stories by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle cool and so today we are talking about Jonathan Witcher spelled like which way so w-h-i-c-h-e-r okay Um, also known as Jack and we're also going to talk about probably his most famous and really horrible case, the murder of Francis Seville Kent. So let's start and learn a little bit about our first famous detective. <laughs> Jack Witcher was born in 1814 in London. In 1837, he joined the Metropolitan Police as a constable. Witcher was about 5'8". He had brown hair and blue eyes and pale skin, which... I feel like in England, that's the norm, right? In 1842, along with seven other men, he joined the newly formed detective branch at Scotland Yard. So this was the first, I think they said English-speaking detective branch. Oh. So I assume there might have been detectives maybe. I'm think, I think India might have had detectives before this, places like that. But um, So this was the first detective role official detective role in the british police so he moved to scotland yard at the detective branch one of his colleagues described him as the prince of detectives and charles dickens said he had a reserved and thoughtful air as if he were engaged in deep arithmetical arithmetical i don't know how which where to put the emphasis on it but like arithmetic guys arithmetical (laughs) calculations So he just had that air of pondering and thinking. and Mm -hmm. Between 1842 and 1860, Witcher was involved in several well-known cases, which I might share with you someday in the future. We might have a a Detective Witcher series. Who knows? That would be cool. 
he was also known for being the only one, some said, but being one who was able to solve the most difficult of cases. So in 1860, Witcher was sent to the village of Rode, which I th- I am fairly certain that's the name. It's really confusing because it's not the town is called Road, but then there's Road Hill and Road Hill House. So and they okay. live and then they live near other villages. So it's a little confusing. But huh. they're in a small village away from London, called Road. Called Road. Um, and he was sent there to solve the murder of three-year-old Francis Seville Kent. He's referred to as Seville. So he went. So they called him Seville, but his full name is Francis Seville Kent. And this was an extremely high-profile case. So this was at a time, you have to remember, even though it had been almost, or it had been over 10 years, right, almost 12 years since the detective squad was formed, detectives still weren't typically dispatched out, out to these smaller areas. They still had their own police forces, constables, that kind of thing. But they were sometimes sent to help in more difficult cases. Okay. So that's very brief life of that John Witcher up to that. Like, you know, I don't know. It sounds similar to America. Like, they're not going to, like, send out a detective to, like, this rural, rural town in, like, you know, Illinois or something unless something, like, super serious happens. Right. But they'll have a detective closer, too. That's the thing. It's oh, spread yeah. now. It's spread now. So rural town in Illinois has some sort of sheriff or something near them so yeah. they can send that out. Here, like, this was just London that they had the detective squad at this time. So... But yeah, I get what you're saying. They even do that currently. Like Toronto sends out their police to the more rural villages up north in Canada because they don't have their own detectives. So, so, um, so that's brief. Jack Witcher, and we're going to talk a little bit about the Kent family now. So this murder that he was called out for. So Samuel Kent, the father, was a factory inspector, and he actually was in charge of inspecting most of the cloth factories in the nearby town of Trowbridge. So Trowbridge was a textile town. They were made their money off cloth, and Samuel Kent um, inspected those. He lived in various different places, maybe to some shady reasons that we'll get into a little bit later, but ultimately ended up at Road Hill House in Road, near where these, I know, it's ridiculous, Near were the near Trowbridge, where he inspected these factories. The townsfolk were not fans of him. When he moved in, he was not happy about cottages that were built like across the road while he was living there. He built a giant fence around the property, put up no trespassing signs, and then when labor laws for children, one of his jobs as inspector was to enforce that. But they found him exceptionally brutal because one at one time he just dismissed more than 20 children under the age of 13 from one of the factories and they were just out on the street and you know in those times families counted on the children's Mm -hmm. money that they earned and so so he was not he was not popular in town in fact even his children at times would be uh teased and called out by the other children children of those yeah So speaking of his children, uh, currently in 1860, Samuel Kent lived with his second wife. Four of his five children from his first wife lived there and three children from his second marriage. Wow. And in addition, his new wife was pregnant. Yeah, he's a jackrabbit. Um, His new wife was also the former governess of the children while while he was still married to his first wife who was ill. Interesting. 
as was common in a lot of houses during that time, like siblings of a similar age and sex would share rooms and things like that. So of his four children from his first marriage who lived there, there was Marianne and Elizabeth in their 20s, unmarried, and they shared a room on the top floor. And then there were Constance, who was 16, and William, I think he was 14. I forget now. And I apparently wrote everybody's age down but his. <laughs> but they had their own rooms, but on the same floor as Marianne and Elizabeth did. Okay. And in the setup of the house, the house had a drawing room on the ground floor, and it had a, a front and a back staircase to get up and down the stairs. This was a house made to have live-in servants and things like that. Yeah. I just want to say, if I was the eldest daughter... You know, you know, she did a solid chunk of the child care, just <laughs> that eldest daughter life. Yeah. And then I was forced to share a room with my sister <laughs> while my 14 year old sister got her own yeah, fucking room. That. I would either burn the house down or I would run away. Well, there was no other daughter within the same age range. Room her with the other fucking daughter. They, the eldest daughter they, should get her own room considering she was mom, most likely. They like, thought <laughs> it was more proper to because they are of similar age and experience. I would have run away. I, I would have been like, take care of them yourself, bitch. I know, and then I would <laughs> I know modern day you would have, but you might have a whole different perspective on things I don't if know. you grew up in that way. I don't know. I, don't I think know it either. runs in the family because my uh, great, 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 great grandpa was the town drunk who I'm had just... two wooden legs because he got run over by the train more than once. So I probably would have still been a hooligan up to no good. <laughs> William and Constance had just, like, the week before returned from their boarding schools for the summer. So they were in their rooms and had just gotten home not too long ago. How terrible to be a child in those days. You spend all year at school, and then your parents still don't want anything to fucking do with you, so they ship you off to boarding school for three months so that you could come back and then spend all of your time in school again. Man. Okay. If you're not working to support everybody. Belle hates the 1860s <laughs> is what I'm getting out I of just, this. I you know. Yeah. So then on the first floor, so this I couldn't quite figure out. I couldn't quite tell if there were two floors or, floors or three floors. So on a bottom floor, which I think is a separate first floor, were where uh, Mr. and Mrs. Kent had their room. And they slept there with their three children, or they slept there with their oldest daughter, Mary Amelia, who was five, slept in their room. Um, And then across the hall was the nursery, and Seville and Evelyn, age one, stayed there with their their governess, Elizabeth Goh, G-O-U-G-H. So I always have to go Goh. Depends on the origin. It might be Goff. Goff. It might be, yeah. They also had two other live-in servants, a maid and a cook, Sarah Cox and Sarah Kruslacki, and they shared a room. I forget on which floor. Okay. Um, but then, you know, on the ground floor, they did have a drawing room. And they had a kitchen. They had lots of doors that locked, and they had this kind of window shade thing, these blinds that had to be raised to access the window in the drawing room. I don't like this family very much. Why? I don't know, just from what you were saying about how he was like out there, like, you know, like kicking all these kids out on the streets and taking these, mm-hmm. you know, this family's income, these poor people who are like literally putting their kids to work because they don't have any other choice but to do that in order to make money. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. they're living in this house with like four fucking servants mm-hmm. and eight bedrooms and this giant think- privacy fence. I don't like them very much. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's pretty rough. We'll see what you think at the end if your mind changes Maybe. or not. <laughs> there was some animosity between the new Mrs. Kent, the old governess, and her stepchildren. I wonder why. Mm-hmm. There were rumors about the relationship between this new governess and Samuel Kent while the mother was still alive because the mother was sick and there were things that rumors abounded that there were things going on. It even said on there he was encouraged by his boss to move to a quieter town where people wouldn't got, wouldn't know how bad it was or something. And so then after his wife died, that's when they moved to Roadhill House after he had married this governess as his second wife. How quickly did the rumors start that he was fooling around with this new governess? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Because that was like way before the murder, because it was his first... Oh, you mean this new governess? Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> Honestly, I don't know. <laughs> I don't like this guy. <laughs> um, there were also some rumors. So I mentioned that the Kents lived with four of Samuel's five children from his first marriage. His eldest son, Edward, uh, was in the Navy and away, so he didn't live there. He was in the Navy when his father married the governess, Miss Pratt, and he was furious, and he said he was coming home to, to fix this and all of that. Then they thought he died for a while because his ship went down, but then they got a letter from him saying he was alive. It was really, com- this family is just complex, but anyway. Wow. So he was furious about the marriage. Rumors were abound, though, That's not a real sentence. There were a lot of rumors that Edward was actually Seville's father. Oh. Constant had a lot of issues with the new Mrs. Kent. She felt that her mom was treated poorly, that Mrs. Kent disrespect, the new Mrs. Kent disrespected her and all of that. So, Hmm. all right. So that's, and that's just like skimming the surface of the oily family. I'm still mad on behalf of the eldest daughter. (laughs) <laughs> oldest son gets to go away be off in the navy not have to deal with this gets shit to be in the navy she's like she's stuck there he would have left regardless you know you know well, he would have left whether he joined the navy or not he would have gotten out as soon as he could and lived his own life while you're the girl, so angry today yeah, because <laughs> feminism <laughs> And we've come a long way since then so we should celebrate know, the changes instead of lamenting the past I just, I just feel sad for her. All right, so I get it, Belle. I get it. But part of it was because he was hiding away while his wife was still alive. Like, they did move to some other small town before they moved to Roadhill House while his wife was still alive. So the oldest girls were isolated, and one of the things that Samuel Kent's boss even told him about moving, he's like, you have to, your daughters are old and they're not married. That's because you keep them hidden. Like, you have to move somewhere where they can get married mm-hmm. and... I know, it's ridiculous, right? Stupid. (laughs) All right. So then, the morning of June 30th, 1860, about five in the morning, nursemaid Elizabeth Goff, I'm just going to say it different every time, Elizabeth Goff wakes up about five in the morning. She notices that Seville is not in his bed, and at some point, notices a blanket from his bed is also missing but his covers were still neatly tucked in and she could still see like the outline of where he had been sleeping on his cot she thinks that he's in his mom's room that maybe mrs kent heard him in the night got up and came and got him um in those days they would sleep with like the door ajar 
so and across the hall so the parents could have the kids not in their room but hear them or could come check on them in the night if they wanted, those kind of things. And also because Mary Amelia slept in the parents' room, it was so that the nursemaid, Elizabeth, could hear if she woke up. So that kind of stuff. So she just thought that Mrs. Kent came in and got Seville. So she goes about her day. She's doing what she needs to do, cleaning up, all the stuff, whatever nursemaids do. I don't know. <laughs> so do it all that. And a couple hours later, Mrs. Kent asks where Seville is. And Elizabeth says, I thought he was with you. No, he's not with me. And of course, being the aristocratic assholes that they were, she gets mad at Elizabeth. Why You should have come and told me right away. Well, like. This isn't the first time you uh, would have gone in your room and like this that. this is your fucking son. Right? Yeah. This is your fucking child. Yes, I understand that you're paying this woman to help you. You're She's giving you a service. But bottom line, it's your fucking child that you decided to fucking have. So why? I Oh, I'm just mad. I saw a bunch of TikToks today about parents today <laughs> that like don't want to parent their kids. That's the biggest reason why I'm pro-choice is because 90% of parents, I truly believe. Maybe 90 is a hard a hard gap, but I I believe that more than half of the parents that exist today, A, most likely didn't want to be parents, and B, aren't even fucking trying. No, I agree. Uh, I mean, 90% is pretty big. Nine, uh, more than half. I'll say 55. <laughs> more than half. Um, okay. Belle's anger is really wearing me out today. This is a lot. I don't know why it's any different than my usual anger. I don't know. It feels intense today to me. Maybe I'm in a different place mentally. <laughs> is it too intense today, Mom? <laughs> I don't know. It's a bit intense. <laughs> it's just, it's it's passionate is what it is. Passionate. So they immediately start searching. They search the house. They learn that... Sarah Cox, the housemaid, did notice that the... So from what I could gather, the way the drawing room was, it was a room that locked as it went into the other rooms, but I don't recall a door being leading to the outside from it, but there was the window. So there was like the door to enter the drawing room was unlocked when Sarah Cox went to open up the house at night and the shade was partially open in the window. So that I know for sure... I can't, I couldn't really tell. It was very confusing. Like the things I found were so vague and then the things that had details were just so like elaborate and like it was hard to pick out some of the things about how the house was set up. That makes me wonder about like the way that records were kept. Oh, yeah, and like totally. this, these early detective, you know, versus like now, like Wait, the, the weird things that it. they thought that they would like be really detailed about and then other things they're like this isn't important (laughs) just wait for it so it appeared that someone had gotten into the house and kidnapped and taken seville right looked like it was an external staged yeah and so they immediately start searching mr kent gets his carriage and goes off to trowbridge to get the uh superintendent foley of the police my son's missing i don't trust him guilty there are a couple of cottagers, I think what they called them. They lived in the cottages that Kent hated. That sounds Kent like it hated. could be a slur. I know. Well, that Kent hated. Um, but they're helping to look. From what I could tell, everybody loved Seville. I mean, he was a three-year-old boy. Yeah, who, yeah. who doesn't love a three-year-old um, boy? So these two men, one of them being William Nutt, decide to start looking on the other side of the property. So they were looking on the side where the drawing room window was and all of that kind of stuff. So they're looking on the other side where the privy is. And they just start looking around and they look in the privy and they find Seville's body. Oh. Yeah, dump him in the toilet? 
And we're going to take a break because I'm really, really hot. Okay. Break time. <laughs> we're going to cool this room off. And it's a good place for a break. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Good story so far. Thanks. Man, I'm interested to hear how the dad killed his son. Okay. <laughs> Hey, little Shemmies. Thanks for tuning in. While we were on our break, I just wanted to let you guys know how you can get a hold of us if you wanted to send us an email with your spooky stories. I'm still waiting for you to tell me those so I could tell them to you. Our email is ffsthepodcast at gmail.com. We'd also love to hear from you on the various social media sites. We're ffsthepodcast on Instagram and on Twitter and on Facebook, you can find us at E-F-F-E-D Up Storytime. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for tuning in. We love you, Shemmies. And uh, back to the show. That's weird. I think that we... I don't know what I was going to say. All right. <laughs> Storytime. <laughs> All right. So when we left off previously on F'd Up Family Storytime... Uh, we had just heard about William Nutt and his friend, who I forget his name, discovering the body of three-year-old, three-year-old Seville, Seville Kent in the privy. Hmm. So Seville was laying on this kind of splash guard thing. Um, what's funny about it is it had recently been installed at the request of Samuel Kent. Otherwise, the body would have just gone down into basically the uh, cesspool that they had and into the soft soil there and probably would not have been found. But Mm -hmm. when the killer dropped Seville down the privy, Seville landed on that splashback. And so he was visible and they were Mm -hmm. able to retrieve him. Did you have a question, Mel? Oh, I just wanted to say that, like, I hate the word privy. It's just like, we all know what you're talking about. Everybody shits. There's a whole children's book about it. I vote that we, as a collective, refer to the toilet as what it actually is. Well, but the shitter. But in Victorian era London, it was the privy. So I'm just being historically accurate. Yeah, you said you were ready for Belle's anger, and she's bringing it immediately. Oh, I know. (laughs) I I am. See how I'm fighting back. (laughs) <laughs> she's gonna find everything stupid. to be angry about Not always <laughs> it's anything new all right so some things never change i hate the word <laughs> i do so they alert everybody and william nut gets down and gets seville out um he's wrapped in a blanket at this point in time local constables had arrived and help were helping in the search so they were there when they brought the body up there was dark bruising almost a bluish blackishness around his lips and he had clearly had had his throat slashed and a definite stab wound to his chest he was wow. wrapped in a blanket the blanket that was missing from his bed so there on the way to Trowbridge, there's like a toll booth so when the body's found someone sends word to the toll booth lady who spoke to mr kent as he was going to Trowbridge. And so then word was sent to her once they found Seville. So by the time, so before uh, Samuel Kent even got back, he already knew that his son was dead. So he comes back with the superintendent of the police there, uh, Superintendent Foley, and they start the investigation. 
So here, yes. I'm just mad again, mad. <laughs> and go. The, it's the 1860s and they're paying a toll. So stupid. It's like a toll road, a toll booth. Well, so why is it so stupid in 1860? Stupid. I don't it's get it. It's stupid. I don't know. It's just stupid. <laughs> it's stupid that we haven't come you- any further than that. It's stupid that I'm still paying a toll when that's what my fucking taxes go to. Except typically the purpose of a toll, and yes, it's been exploited recently, was to pay for it so it doesn't oh, have to okay. come out of your taxes. So this toll potentially was to pay for the bridge and the road that got to and the taxes then, didn't but now we like to pay taxes and for nothing have to pay, pay for taxes again. for right. nothing the because they don't go to anything the government <laughs> likes to double charge us oh yeah that was the original purpose of no, a lot of toll roads sense. i mean but now the entire east coast is just a giant oh, yeah. toll road well, <laughs> but even back then some tolls were just for because the lord of the land controlled it yeah, and wanted stupid. money so i mean who knows i'm not talking about modern day i am talking about historically which is where you started Belle. y'all wanted me to come <laughs> no no i i'm fine with that i just want you to stay in one century for more than two minutes like no <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> all right the toll he found out his child you have to was pay dead. the troll toll to get into the boy's hole. <laughs> <laughs> During this whole time, the household was interviewed. So they interviewed both Sarahs, the maid and the cook. They interviewed Elizabeth. They talked to Mr. and Mrs. Kent, talked to the children, all that kind of stuff. And so there was the whole thing with the blanket. There was a lot of question about the blanket because the way it was described, the blanket Pulling it out should have mussed the sheets, but the sheets, it was like between a sheet and something else, and but the sheets were tucked back in neatly. So, and then there was the question of how did they remove the child without it waking and waking up who Elizabeth, assuming Elizabeth isn't the one who took the kid, you know? So there was that. And then there was also discrepancy, like at one point, Elizabeth said the blanket was gone, but then she said she didn't say that, but then she said it was gone. So there was, and same with Mr. Kent, there was a lot of weirdness about the blanket and what people said. Okay. So that was interesting. They also found in the privy, (laughs) I looked right at Belle when I said that, guys, (laughs) they found a breast flannel, which essentially is just a piece of cloth with some straps that cup that is padding under a corset oh okay so it's it's padding for a corset and they found that where in the privy okay in the privy so an another interesting thing they found in a search of the house was a bloodied nightgown shoved in one of the chimneys was there blood was the baby bloody was he like maimed well he he had his throat slit in the chest wound somehow you were getting ready to have your angry rant it was the first thing i said when we came back and then you just jumped right in (laughs) i hate the word privy i do hate Um, yes you lost it because of the word privy (laughs) no i remember thinking when you said that that that's pretty violent against Mm -hmm. a three-year-old to slit their throat and then stab them in the chest or stab them and then slit their throat and here's another interesting thing too was the lack of blood that they found so the amount there was blood there was bloodied stuff but they many uh, multiple experts felt that there was not enough blood to account for if he had had his throat slit when he when his heart was still beating was there would alive. have been so much more blood. yeah so there is a theory you have to remember it was 1860 so i consider everything a theory because they didn't have any sort of yeah. you know, tools prove to prove it, it. Yeah. 
so that so that leads to the theory of the neck being slashed afterwards and what's the motivation around that you know that kind of stuff yeah okay so with the bloody nightgown that they found foley superintendent foley instructed his constables to put it back and they set up a stakeout to see if the killer would come back and get the bloody nightgown however Two of his constables, who were on watch, somehow found themselves locked in the kitchen. And when they got out, the nightgown was gone. Oh, my God. Foley worried that his men would face reprimand or something. I don't know. Chose not to share that with anybody else. Well, so that was the mistake. So, so this bloody... And the fact that it was even found. So very few people even knew that there was a bloody nightgown found shoved in the chimney. Jeez. And that was the mistake. Like, the getting locked in the kitchen, that's like shit happens. And they probably weren't expecting that. You know it what I mean? It gives you like, a little bit of a bumbling cop feel. But, but like, like, shit happens, right? You didn't probably didn't even know the kitchen door locked. Whose kitchen door fucking locks? Maybe they got locked in by whoever went back to get the night. That's what I mean. Yeah. But then a lie I've, about it. They had a million really... doors that locked inside, it feels like. This door locked and that door locked. That's and like... weird. It's really comforting to know that like nothing has changed since the 1860s. <laughs> the tolls, the competency of our police department. Yeah. Oh, but what about our newly formed detective division? Huh? I think there's I a think witcher I think the, the verdict's still out at this point. <laughs> Are they competent? Like so, you had mentioned earlier, it's got to be pretty easy to be like, part of the justice system back in the 1860s because you really didn't need any proof. You were just like, I have a hunch. This guy's guilty. And they were like, take him away. <laughs> exactly. So Superintendent Foley, Foley was 100% convinced that it had to have been Elizabeth Goch who... Because um, <laughs> she had access and... Um, who, was, who did it. The other thing they did, so this, so they had what they called a searcher. It was a woman who took care of searching females uh, okay. for the police. So they brought her in, and she did search them, but didn't really find anything. Um, but then they had her come back and required all the women of the house, or actually, no, I'm sorry, only the servants, servant women of the house. He did not require the ladies. Big mistake. To try on the <laughs> breast flannel. And because, you know, everybody is their own unique size. It fit Elizabeth, so it must have been her who dropped Cinderella. it. Cinderella. Yeah, because two women You're could possibly wear exactly. the same breast flannel. It doesn't sound like it's a fitted bra. It sound, I feel like adjustable straps are probably involved in some way. Or like like ties. ties. Yeah. Would I put the shit bra on my body or would I just surrender and go to jail? I, I might know. just surrender and I mean, go to jail. You, would, uh, <laughs> you admitted that you would leave your baby in the shitter if he fell. So well, I'm, if he was, no, no, I never said that. <laughs> Let me be specific. I said the baby's body. Oh, okay. I okay. see. Okay, that's, that's so much better. I thought you meant the baby. No, <laughs> if the like, baby was alive and I could grab him, I would. But like for the dead body, yeah, you're like, okay. all right, well, this is where you're resting. No, I just <laughs> sent somebody else in after it. But you also have to think of the time this was a servant woman who felt like she had to do whatever she was told, not just by the police, but by her employers. Yeah. Like, so if they said, get naked and put try this on, she's probably not going to want to, but she's probably just going to do it because mm. the consequences are much more worse for her if she doesn't. Could you imagine, like, if it was somebody like George who can't be around shit without, like, involuntary gagging? I could just picture, like... <laughs> 
this comedy of 1860 <laughs> crime scene. <laughs> Sorry, sir. <laughs> I'm trying to put. I'm trying to put it on. <laughs> So, all right, anyway, so there were a couple different times that the magistrates of the area, I think Trowbridge, I was so, I apologize, I'm normally better than this, but I was so confused about this, and I couldn't find a map, yet they had a map of the inside of the police barracks, but I couldn't find a map of the house, or (laughs) of the area, like, because I want to know what the police barracks look like. I know, right? What is a magistrate? Kind of like a... a, back then it would have been like a governor or a mayor or someone on the ki- town council kind of in charge of making decisions for the town or the area that they're in. Oh. So somebody I don't respect. Pro- <laughs> I mean, it depends. Some good people get on town councils like Uncle Shane. Okay. Yeah, there are some good mayors too. Uncle Shane ran for mayor. He would have been a good mayor. He would have been, been a good mayor. Lost. You know who's not a good mayor? My high school principal. Not doing a great job. <laughs> Is he mayor? Yeah. Where's he mayor of? Denver. Oh, really? He was my high school principal. Literally. I did not yeah, literally. know that the mayor that just got elected was your high he school principal. He was my high school principal. principal. At one time, he picked me up for passages because everybody was working and it was this dumb thing that we had to do after school had like ended. And so the buses weren't running anymore. But every student had to come and like give this presentation in order to pass on to the next grade or whatever. And because they knew that, like, everybody's parents were working because we lived in, like, you know, one of the poorest districts in the city. They had, like, this whole, like, teacher pool that would, like, go around and, like, pick up students and take them, you know. That's cool. Yeah. And uh, Mr. Johnston picked me up and he picked me up first and I get into his passenger seat and he's got like garbage his car <laughs> his car looked like mine did and then he's like throwing used socks into the back seat oh he's my like God. apologizing I'll never forget that's our mayor <laughs> that's our mayor I like that a little bit though I mean I'm not gonna say he's doing a good job that but, explains but it makes some it, things it makes it they're more human though like yeah. <laughs> that's exactly why like, I trust I am not the mayor like, <laughs> but I trust people like that more like that just kind of like oh and you're gonna let your kids you're the principal and you don't care that they see yeah. the disaster of a car he up, like two other kids they sit in the back seat we like, all were just kind of like, uh, like <laughs> I mean he just is who he is right? yeah like, that's interesting and which three I years appreciate. later my car looked the exact same <laughs> um okay Mr. Kent had made a request to through the magistrates to Scotland Yard to send a detective, and it was denied. So Foley's in charge. They actually end up arresting Elizabeth oh. for it and holding her in jail. Because if the corset fits, you must. I know, right? A quit? That's because, not a quit. Because if the size <laughs> medium t-shirt... <laughs> if it's one person they must be guilty the cor- that's what that feels if, like if the corset fits you must convict they're like here put on this small good. shirt just took me a second this, still coming yeah, down from this, bell's this, anger this, high. Uh, this large to medium belt the, this, hand, this handmade fits, you gotta be yeah, guilty put on this adjustable thing that really <laughs> could go to any size you want it to go to Tie this cloth around you. So it fits. She she denied and denied and denied. And there were a lot of theories abounding, like were Elizabeth and Mr. Kent having an affair and Seville woke up and saw them and this was a crime of passion, things like that. But all still just rumors flying around from the town. Wouldn't be um, surprised. They, they send a sec the magistrates still, because there's no evidence to convict Elizabeth, but they've got her sitting locked up in jail. They actually technically bonded her out 
for a weekend. They said, just come back on Monday. And she refused and said she would spend the whole time in prison. So she stayed in the jail. And then during that time, they were like, just promise to come back. And I would have been like, yeah. And she was going to be left. She was going to be left in the care of family members. I forget which ones, but like a, her, I think her father and brother came. Oh, my dad would totally I spirit ran away. me away. Oh, yeah. I know, but in those days, they assumed that they were gentlemen and they would oh. bring her back on Monday, right? Man of his word and mm-hmm. everything. So during this time, they sent another request for a detective from Scotland Yard. And Scotland Yard finally agrees and sends Detective Witcher out to road. Wait, which, which detective? Witcher. Which detective? Who? Who? Witcher. Who's on first? <laughs> so when Witcher... <laughs> shut up, I just hit my foot. Jonathan Witcher arrives in Road two weeks late, essentially. He arrives two weeks after the murder. At this point, Seville has been cleaned and dressed and buried already after being examined by... He was actually examined by a couple other doctors, uh, uh, by two separate doctors. We'll talk about that later. And so he's already starting at a disadvantage, but he really just hits the ground running and is like, all right, I'm talking to you people. Like he acknowledges maybe not to them, but it, he, it does say how he was aware that like he's opening new wounds, but this is how you be a detective. You have to ask these questions. You have to do this. So he starts interviewing. He searches the house. He talks to the family members, members. He examines the shades and he determines that they could not have been opened from the outside, that they had to have been opened from the inside. And he is very convinced that it was, it's so funny, in one of the books I read, they kept calling them inmates. It was an inmate of the house who committed this murder. So basically a <laughs> resident of the house. That's it was, funny. It was an inside job. Oh, um, another thing that Witcher discovers is, in Constance's belongings, there is a linen list. So it's essentially like she comes back from school. It's like her linen list. What's, you know, in there. And he immediately notices that a nightgown is missing from it. Oh. Now, keep in mind, he doesn't know about the nightgown in the chimney, right? Because oh, right. nobody okay. knows about that. So this is new to him. Yeah. yeah. There is not a lot that was shared with Witcher from Superintendent Foley or anybody else. So a lot of the things he's discovering are like new to him, huh. even though we already know they exist. Yeah. Right. So he finds he notices that nightgown is missing and questions her about it. And she says, well, it was lost with the laundry, which there was an incident before Witcher got there where their laundress came and got the laundry and they always give a list. And she noticed a nightgown was missing, that it didn't come with it. And she was going to go and talk to them about it. But something when she was there, something with the investigation, the death, like she never really got a chance to tell them that the nightgown was missing. Mm-hmm. And then she refused to do their washing after that. Like, oh, okay. um, so so what Constance tells Witcher is that it was lost in the laundry. But according to the laundress, it wasn't there when they got it kind of thing. So there's okay. this kind of discrepancy. But nobody ever really knew that because she never really told them. Yeah. Yes, this whole, Belle. This whole nightgown shit is just so stupid. I just don't understand, <laughs> like, why the police officers in the first place. Like, I can understand wanting to do, like, a stakeout to see if anybody would come for the nightgown. So just don't tell anybody about the nightgown. Well, they, they didn't. You don't have to leave the nightgown. That's true. You, yes. you could still take it and have it as evidence. That's, that's and stupid. Wa- and watch it's them, stupid. And watch them get there and go. And then freak out because the nightgown's missing. Well, you know, 
if they had had detectives in the town, they might have thought of that. Because those yeah. are the kinds of things that Witcher is thinking yeah, about. I guess you're right. I still... Why didn't you take it? I know. <laughs> like, you don't have to put it back to have a stakeout. Yeah. Unless, unless it was something that was in plain sight that they will immediately yeah, notice exactly. is missing, right? But like, it wasn't. Shoved up a it chimney. was wedged in the chimney. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> he began to kind of zero in on Constance. He also had suspicions of William as well. Um, they were the Constance was the one 16 year old okay and, who got her own bedroom and William was a 14 year old both children of Kent's first wife that had an issue with the na- the new wife yeah, I'd have an issue um, too so so yeah. Witcher be- begins reaching out to Constance's school so the boarding school she would just come back from and for the most part got decent reports she was a normal kid nothing really bad he also talked to Dr. Parsons, who was one of the doctors who examined the body. Another doctor, Dr. Stapleton, was also there examining the body. Stapleton was a close friend of Samuel Kent. And Stapleton was very much like this was, you know, one of the servants, like very much pushing for it to be an outsider or things like that. Like, okay. But Dr. Parsons noticed a lot of other things. For example, I mentioned that. The kid's mouth was a funny color. It was dark. It was black, Mm -hmm. which is a sign of suffocation, right? Mm -hmm. Dr. Parsons believed he was suffocated first, then had his throat slit and stabbed for whatever motivation, maybe to make it a spectacle or whatever. And that's why there was so little blood because his blood wasn't pumping. Yeah. Dr. Parsons also was extremely suspicious of Constance's nightgown. He said that there was an extremely clean, almost spotless nightgown that was supposedly worn for six days that Constance had. Uh. Um, and and they kind of allude to, is that the one that went missing kind of thing? Yeah. In addition, and this is controversial because there was a lot of talk about mad women back then. Like, if you had an opinion, you were mad. But Dr. Parsons says that Charlotte did show signs of madness as well. So, Witcher... She thinks for herself. Well, I, I, you, we'll see. Um, th- this is one time where I'm like, maybe the doctor was right. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> so at this point, Witcher's pretty convinced that Constance was involved. He still suspects William and thinks they might have been on it, in on it together, but there's no evidence to William at all. He theorizes that Constance used the back stairs to go into the nursery. She removes Seville along with the blanket. And he surmises that she might have even gone out through the kitchen rather than have set the blinds as a misdirect. Because he says it would be much easier to get to the privy because the kitchen door was on the back side of the house where the privy was. Okay. So that's kind of his theory. He takes it to the magistrates and they order her to be arrested. Of course, being wealthy, Mr. Kent hires a very experienced lawyer. And oddly enough, it seems that the person in charge of trying the case was the detective because they talk about Witcher preparing to try the case and things like that. So it's kind of interesting. But during all of this, Constance was bonded out and the charges were eventually dropped due to lack of evidence. And really, it's that nightgown uh-huh. kind of thing, right? Everybody knows something's up with it, but it doesn't exist. The nightgown was never found and fully never disclosed to Witcher that he even discovered it. Oh. Witcher didn't know until three months after this was like done wow. that they had even found that nightgown. Because the charges were dropped, Witcher 
was criticized, was widely criticized because they thought that Charlotte was just a scapegoat. Um, and the prevailing theory was actually that Elizabeth Goh and William Nutt were in a relationship, got caught by Seville, killed him. But the saddest thing is, is that like not only did Constance and William, but Elizabeth, they all lived under this shadow. They couldn't find employable work. And so and at this point, you know, witchers being criticized and called basically thought to be incompetent and ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So it's just a shitty period. Did you have a question, Bill? No, I just like how much is a three year old going to give away? I know. I was thinking that too. Like, oh, you got caught by the three-year-old. Three Anything he says, everybody's it, gonna be like, "Yeah, okay, sure." I mean, like, <laughs> I mean it depends on the three-year-old. Remember Hannah when she was three? She was very yeah, perceptive. But Hannah was also creepy as fuck, and well, anything that Hannah said could have been out of some weird fucking dream that they had, or yeah. something, or some weird like still nightmare three. scenario yeah but it, you didn't know if it was true anything yeah. you know it's like, <laughs> the thing it's still a three-year-old kid no matter how precocious they yeah. may be that doesn't right. mean you're gonna take them seriously because <laughs> you're gonna be like you're fucking three <laughs> so this murder remained prevalent and in the news for several years until one day in 1865 constance confesses to the murder she confesses wow. to the Anglo-Saxon, Anglican church version of a priest kind of thing. Because he's not okay. a priest, but he okay. claimed like confessional okay. uh, secrecy stuff. So she confesses and she tells the reverend that she wants to turn herself in. So he goes with her to the courthouse. Oh, she's turning herself she in. Turns, Who put her up to this? She turns herself in and provides a statement. She goes to... Sir Thomas Henry, who was the chief magistrate, and provides the letter. this letter. I, Constance Emily Kent, alone and unaided on the night of the 29th of June, 1860, murdered at Road Hill House, Wiltshire, one Francis Seville Kent, before the, dead was, before the deed was done, no one knew of my intention, nor afterwards of my guilt. No one assisted me in the crime, nor in the evasion of discovery. There followed after that a very long, almost interrogation between the magistrate and Constance and the reverend about, were you forced to do this? Do you state that this is your hand on handwriting on this paper and written of your own free will? And then, like, really interrogated the reverend, like, did you force her? Did you coerce her? Did you... All that kind of stuff. That so. would be my immediate question, too, mm-hmm. because, like, you start out this letter, I, without any help and unaided, nobody is putting me up to this. That's, that's... Well, but <sighs> she was guilty. She felt bad. Yeah, but why, why you gotta, why you gotta, it, like, point it out if it, you're not trying to hide Because it's 1860s Victorian London. That's, they were taught to, to... You just go? You're like... To, to like punish themselves like I that. I did this and, and I mean, that's really. it. And then people are like, oh, you did this. The well, fact that you're like, I did this without any help. Nobody helped me. I didn't have anybody to help me. That's like really suspicious. Or she's just making sure that nobody else in her family is going to continue to be a suspect. I mean, if I were her, I'd throw the stepmom under the bus because I. that's probably why she did it anyway. <laughs> so after all that questioning, the magistrate is confident that she is doing this of her own free will. So, you know, they start to go through the whole process and the trials and things. At one point, they want to somebody, I think probably attorneys, I don't know, suggested that she was just mad, but she refused to let the doctors declare her insane. She said, no, I'm not. 
So she goes through this whole thing. I couldn't really find a full confession. And here's the funny thing about her confession. Like, I 100% believe that Constance was involved in his death. I think William helped her, though. Because there are some discrepancies. Like, there's no mention of the suffocation. Maybe that happened on accident while they were carrying him, trying to keep him quiet. I don't know, right? But Constance said that she went and got him and took him out the drawing room window. Feasible if it's from the inside, maybe, right? And then she says she took him and and used her father's razor to slit his throat that she stole. But what's missing from there is the stab wound, because that was done with a knife, and the suffocation, which, again, she may have suffocated him and not known, um, too. So there was that. She never really would give a motive. The funny thing is that, like, she would talk about how she didn't like her stepmom, but she was adamant in telling people that, like, she was not mean to me. She did not harm me. She wasn't abused. Like, you know, they were kind. I had a good life. But she hated the way that she thought her mother was treated by her. Oh. But she never really gave a full meaning. You know, motive was kind of hard to figure out from her. Witcher, at this point, still believes William was involved, but there's no evidence to tie him to that. Constance is convicted and sentenced to death um, by the judge. The judge was in tears talking about how much it pains him to basically to send a woman to death kind of thing. But like he cried as he delivered her sentence. Sometime later, Queen Victoria commuted her death sentence and changed it to life in prison because at the time of the murder, she was only 16. So because of her age at the time it happened and because she came and turned herself in, she commuted it to life in prison. I don't know what that means back then, because about like 40 years later or something, they, or was it 20? I don't know. Decades later, she was released. She was just released from prison. She left. She changed her name, moved to Australia with her brother, I think. <laughs> so, okay. um, but once Constant conf- Constance confessed, Witcher made a trip to where Elizabeth Go was currently residing to tell her that like, and they made an effort to make sure people knew because she hadn't been able to find decent employment, things like that. So they made an effort to kind of yeah, get her back in a good spot there. There were rumors that her, she did what she did out of feelings of revenge uh, based on cruel treatment. And so that's when she gets into, she says, you know, I've received the greatest kindness from both the persons accused of subjecting me to it. I have never had any ill will towards either of them on account of their behavior to me, which has been very kind. And she still doesn't say anything else about her motive. But sometime later that year, she writes a letter to a trusted friend. And it's kind of long, but this is going to be the end of it, really. So the murder I committed to avenge my mother, whose place had been usurped by my stepmother. The latter had been living in the family ever since my birth. She treated me with all the kindness and affection of a mother, for my own mother never loved or cared for me, and I loved her as though she had been. When no more than three years old, I began to observe that my mother held quite a secondary place both as a wife and as a mistress of the house. She, it was, who really ruled. Many conversations on the subject, which I was considered too young to understand, I heard and remembered in after years. At that time, I always took part against my mother, whom being spoken of with contempt, I too despised. As I grew older and understood that my father loved her and treated my mother with indifference, my opinion began to alter. I felt a secret dislike to her when she spoke scornfully or disparagingly of my mother. Mama died 
From that time, my love turned to the most bitter hatred. Even after her death, she continued to speak of her with scorn. At such times, my hate grew so, so intense that I could not remain in the room. I vowed deadly vengeance, renounced all belief in religion, and devoted myself, body and soul, to the evil spirit, invoking his aid in my scheme of revenge. At first I thought of murdering her, but that seemed to me too short a pang. I would have her feel my revenge. She had robbed my mother of the affection which was her due, so I would rob her of what she most loved. From that time, I became a demon, always seeking to do evil and to lead others into it, ever trying to find an occasion to accomplish my evil design. I found it. Nearly five years have passed since passed away, during which time I've either been in a wild, feverish state of mind, only happy and doing evil, or else so very wretched that I often could have put an end to myself had means been near at the moment. I felt hatred towards everyone, and as a wish to make them as wretched as myself. At last a change came, my conscience tormented me with remorse, miserable, wretched, suspicious, I felt as though hell were in me, then I resolved to confess. I am now ready to make what restitution is in my power, and life for life is all that I can give, as the evil done can never be repaired. I had no mercy, let none ask it for me, though indeed all must regard me with too much horror. Forgiveness from those I have so deeply injured, I dared not ask, I hated, so is their hatred, my just retribution." So that's where I'm like, if she really wrote that, and that's just an excerpt from it. Apparently it was even longer. It's the only surviving excerpt from this letter. Um, But to me, like she, she had a hand in it. Like she, yeah. but I think William felt the same as her. Maybe she encouraged him and I think he helped because I think it would have been way too hard for her to get him out the small opening of the blinds in the drawing room mm-hmm. without him waking up and things like that, you know? And Well, and the fact that she didn't have all of the details right. about the murder makes it seem like maybe she was there, but she didn't fully or, participate. Right, maybe she said what she did and the other things are what William did, yeah. you know? But Witcher felt the same way that William was involved somehow. But yeah. So five years later, she confessed, and Witcher was right all along. Mm-hmm. And I hope he gave everybody whatever the Victorian era <laughs> version of the bird was yeah, and no said, shit. fuck you, assholes. Yeah, I told you so. <laughs> that's cool. Well, that's a good story, Jess. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, that was a fucked up story. Now it's time for something not messed up. Oh, wait, but I forgot to tell you some of the things <laughs> that Witcher did that kind of have led to um modern day detective work like the the uh, breast flannel he made the comment that this may not be related to the murder just because something was there doesn't mean it was placed there when the body got there yeah it could have been thrown there at an earlier time it could have dropped and then like not worth it yeah (laughs) so so he was one of the first detectives to put this idea of like just because it's there doesn't make it evidence or applicable to the crime. So that was another thing that, you know, got taken into modern day detective work. So, and things like that. So, and the way he looked at the linens in the house and just, and the way he concluded and tested the blinds in the, in the room to see if they could be open from the outside. He even had, and what's funny is what I read is they don't know how, 
they don't know whose child they used or how they got him to sleep on command, but they actually did several tests to see if they could pull a three-year-old child out of that cot without waking him. And they succeeded three times. <laughs> but so it's that kind of stuff. Yeah. Like he was like, we've got to actually investigate it. Could someone do this without him waking up? Yeah. Because if they can't, then what? Uh, why didn't Elizabeth hear what was going on yeah. or whatever, you know? So, yeah. so that's part of why uh, he's considered kind of the first of the modern day detective kind of thing. That's cool. Sorry. Sounds like a cool Now guy. for a happy thought. Sorry. Now for something not messed up. One thing doesn't suck. One thing doesn't suck. Yeah. Yay. All right. So are you, do you have something or am I doing it? I didn't okay. pick anything because you said you had one. All right. I had an, my, I had an idea. So I asked Jesse if I could do the happy thing. And that's because the other day, our neighbor, really nice neighbor, brought us some garden tomatoes. He brought us some squash, too. But one of my favorite things is taking a tomato, a garden tomato, a really good, flavorful, juicy garden tomato, a little bit of salt, and just eating it like an apple. Just bite into it, let Mm -hmm. that juice run down your chin. And as I was eating this tomato, it started composing like a little poem in my head to tomatoes and the deliciousness of tomatoes. And so then I thought, I wonder if anybody's ever written a poem or an ode to tomatoes. And I found (laughs) Ode to Tomatoes by Pablo Neruda. All right, and I'm going to read that for you all today. Yay! The street filled with tomatoes, midday, summer. Light is halved, Like a tomato, its juice runs through the streets. In December, unabated, the tomato invades the kitchen. It enters at lunchtime, takes its ease on countertops, among glasses, butter dishes, blue salt cellars. It sheds its own light, benign majesty. Unfortunately, we must murder it. The knife sinks into living flesh, red viscera, a cool sum, profound, inexhaustible. Populates the salad of chili. Happily, it is wed to the clear onion, and to celebrate the union, we pour oil, essential essential child of the olive, onto its halved hemispheres. Pepper adds its fragrance, salt, its mag- magnetism. It is the wedding of the day. Parsley hoists its flag. Potatoes bubble vigorously. The aroma of the roast knocks at the door. It's time. Come on. And on the table at the midpoint of summer, the tomato, star of the earth, recurrent and fertile star, displays its convolutions, its canals, its remarkable amplitude and abundance. No pit. No husk, no leaves or thorns. The tomato offers its gift of fiery color and cool completeness. I loved it. (laughs) So there we go. I love tomatoes. And that is a happy thought. And I'm sorry if you don't love tomatoes, find an ode to whatever is your favorite vegetable or food. And if you can't find one, write one. Write one. Yeah. (laughs) We're inspiring creativity. Yeah. So that was it. Send them in. That was weird. I kind of liked it. I'm not I a big. It. I'm not a big poem fan in general, though. Like it's just a a, a poem about tomatoes. I thought it I was just, too cool. I struggle with disjointed thoughts. I think, and that's why I don't like poems so much. That's probably why you have such a hard time talking to me. Because <laughs> all of your thoughts are disjointed. Hey. All right. Well, that was it then. Ooh. I guess anybody have anything to add before we say goodbye? No. Nope. All right. Don't do drugs <laughs> and stay in school. Yep. I mean, do some drugs, but do them responsibly. <laughs> don't do drugs.
<laughs> don't do illegal drugs. Yeah. Just be safe. Yeah, just, just be safe. Because <laughs> right. I'm sure we have so many listeners who are young. Like, we're talking to, like, 50-year-olds probably. Yeah, and I'm sure 50-year-olds do drugs, too. I know, but we sh- don't really need to tell them to be safe. I feel like if they I haven't think figured it out by now, they're not gonna. I think it's important to remind everybody to be safe. Okay. What was it you were saying yesterday? You were like, why is everybody always telling people to drive safe? That was not me. Who said that? Probably my daughter. Maybe. Somebody I was talking to yesterday said that. And I was like, it's because it's scary out there. Everybody should be driving safe. <laughs> oh, my God. I vaguely remember it. Yes. I think you said it and Evie said it and I was there. And yeah. so that's probably why you're associating yeah. me with it. But probably. Evie was the one. She has all sorts of opinions on stuff. I do, too. Though. That sometimes yeah. are very like, huh. You know, you may be on to something there. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I think it's an important reminder. It is. So drive safe, should drive safe. <laughs> drive safe. Tip your waiters. Tip your waiters. Try not to be an asshole. Don't forget that only like three people in the world consistently. So do whatever you want. Stop that. This is getting dark.